Let me begin with a true story, which some of you may know. In the summer of 1910, Gustav Mahler returned to Vienna after a successful but exhausting stint in New York as conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera. Back in Vienna, Mahler set about rehearsing for the premiere performance of his monumental Eighth Symphony while concurrently beginning to compose his Tenth Symphony. One day, he opened an envelope addressed to himself and found inside a love letter written by one Walter Gropius, the future founder of the Bauhaus School of Architecture, to his wife, to Mahler's wife, uh, Alma, a letter in which Gropius declared his love for Alma and urged her to leave her husband. Gustav, as many of you will know the story, confronted Alma and Gropius, and though Alma tearfully begged her husband's forgiveness and swore that she would never leave him, Gustav remained unconvinced. Day and night, he ruminated about the possibility that Alma may leave him. He became depressed and could not work. So he made an appointment to see one Sigmund Freud, an appointment which he made and then cancelled three times before finally meeting Freud in the Dutch city of Leiden where Freud was preparing to go on a holiday. That day, Mahler and Freud walked around the streets of Leiden for about four hours, at the end of which... Freud assured Gustav that Alma would not leave him. He also advised Gustav to resume conjugal relations with Alma, for Gustav and Alma had not had sex for a couple of years. Gustav returned to Vienna, enormously relieved, wrote a short poem of praise and gratitude to Freud, made significant changes to his relationship with Alma, and resumed his work with Gusto though tragically he had only one more year to live, and as we heard this morning, he died from complications of endocarditis. The story suggests that, of course, perhaps, although Freud's name is associated with what's called the talking cure, perhaps we should also call it the walking cure. Some three years earlier, at a dinner party attended by Gustav and Alma, the young conductor Bruno Walter, Mahler's protege, told the story of how his, Bruno Walter's, arm had become paralysed so that he could not conduct. He had sought treatment from Sigmund Freud, who cured him in six sessions. According to the record of the conversation of the dinner party, kept by one Klaus Springstein, who was the brother-in-law of the great German novelist Thomas Mann, Springstein recorded that Gustav Mahler was scornful of Bruno Walter's story declaring that he, Mahler, would never consider consulting Freud, since he, Mahler, knew that Freud had basically only one idea which he reiterated under various guises. Out of deference to his young wife, Gustav did not say what that one idea was, but everyone at the dinner party understood that Gustav was referring to Freud's theory of the sexual origins of neurosis. Now, this was 1910 or 1970, the dinner party, and Freud had almost another 30 years of theorizing and clinical practice ahead of him. But in so many ways, this story is so utterly and indubitably and incontestably Freudian. We can only hear and interpret that story through the categories of thought and experience that Freud went on to chart for us. The idea of unconscious motivation and its appearance in various guises in the human body and in human relationships across the life cycle of individuals and indeed across the cycle of society and civilizations. 
Gropius' mistake in addressing the letter to, to, Zygmunt, to uh, Gustav instead of uh, Alma. Gustav, the great man in midlife, perhaps with intimations of his own mortality, as we've heard, the colossus on the world stage, but impotent in the bedroom, stricken with despair at the prospect of losing the love of the woman whom he worships and adores, his chivalrous defense about her sensitivities at the dinner party, though Alma was to go on to have love affairs with every creative male west of the Volga in the next 20 years, <laughs> immortalized, as some of you may know, in the famous song by Tom Lehrer. <clears throat> Mahler's dismissive scorn and caricature of Freud's ideas, all these are the very phenomena that Freud sought to explain uh, and which shapes the thinking of modernity. Modernity being the idea that one must penetrate, as it were, beneath the facade, beneath appearances, to a deeper reality, to a more fundamental truth than meets the eye or the ear. Contemporary psychology and psychiatry, for all the multitude of treatment modalities that they offer, owe a profound debt to Freud, a debt which is rarely acknowledged since most contemporary psychologists and psychiatrists are as ignorant and scornful of psychoanalysis today as Mahler was at that dinner party in 1907. So let me give you some, uh, let's put some flesh to some of these people and some of the ideas, some biographical information first. So Sigmund Freud was the oldest son of Jacob and Amelie Freud, born in 1856 in Freiburg, Moravia, today called Pribor um, in, the, in, in Slovakia, about 240 k's east of Vienna. Jacob was a successful wool and cloth merchant and had moved to Freiburg from Galicia in eastern Poland. Just to orient us to the chronology of, of um, Freud's birth, arguably the two greatest intellectual works of the 19th century, uh, Darwin's uh, On the Origin of Species and Karl Marx's Das Kapital, appeared in 1859 and 1878, respectively. 1848 also saw the Viennese Revolution, suppressed by force of arms, but re resulting in the liberalization of laws regulating the social order in the then vast Austro-Hungarian Empire. These new laws permitted the political, social, and vocational emancipation of the Jews. And though their implementation of the laws was slow and often partial, it made it less necessary, as we've heard, for Jews to convert to Catholicism in order to advance up the social and economic ladder. This had been the case, of course, with many Jews. For example, the wealthy, though psychologically blighted, family of the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher Karl Popper, Gustav Mahler, the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal, and many others. Jews also sought, under the new order, political participation. While a few cheered Karl Marx when he appeared briefly at the barricades in 1848, by a couple of decades later, many of them had found a political voice in the Social Democratic Party, led by Victor Adler, whose brother Alfred was one of Freud's early associates, but soon broke from Freud and formed his own school of psychotherapy. But it would appear that all these people knew themselves as individuals and that their families had had connections going back for years, if not decades. Freud was the oldest of eight children, born in a span of just 10 years to Amelie and Jacob. When, the family was, when Sigmund Freud was four years old, the family moved to Vienna, and Freud remained there till 1938, when after the Anschluss, the, the Union of Austria and Germany, 
Freud and his entourage, including wife and children, fled to England. However, four of Freud's sisters and their families remained behind and most died in the Holocaust. Freud, in 1884, had met and married Martha Benais. The Vienna General Hospital, where Freud did a four-year residency with general interest in internal medicine under the great Professor Nothnagel, and in neuroscience or neuropathology, as it was then uh, called under Thomas uh, Minot, great, um, great neuropathologist Minot, the Vienna General Hospital. In 1898, a great exhibition was held in Vienna to celebrate the jubilee of the Emperor Franz Joseph, 50 years after the revolution, and the culmination of an ambitious urban renewal project that many of you know about, which saw the rebuilding of the famous Ringstrasse in Vienna, the building of the canal between uh, the city and the Danube River, the new opera house and the university. The young architect, Alfred Loys, was commissioned by a Viennese newspaper to write about this. And on seeing the uh, renovations and refurbished city, Loys referred to it as Potemkin City. Potemkin was a Russian general who so adored his queen, the princess, uh, Empress Catherine of Russia, Catherine the Great, that whenever she traveled around the countryside, Potemkin had the peasants build makeshift huts out of wood and cardboard to make the area look happy and prosperous. And hence, Lois called this newly refurbished Vienna Potemkin City. And Freud liked this term very much. An eyewitness um, biography of Vienna at that time by uh, Ilse Barea described her city as, as follows. So the project of modernity that was born uh, in Vienna seemed to be, as it were, embodied in the very architecture of the city. There is what might be called the received view, or the widely accepted view, that psychoanalysis and its contribution to the project of modernity could only have arisen in, in Vienna. Because after all, um, the prevalent, and there are two versions of this theory. One is that the prevalent sexual hypocrisy, social inhibition, and rigidified codes of public conduct cried out for some uh, sort of um, pricking of the facade by Freud in the era of psychology, by the satirist uh, Karl Krauss, by Arthur Schnitzler, the playwright. Many, many other intellectuals were, de were dedicated the, to the prospect of pricking the facade, of seeing what was really going on uh, behind the facade or the veneer. Equally, an equally strong view about the privileged place of Vienna was that its, as it were, liberated atmosphere, its sexual candor, its social experimentation, its freewheeling inquiry into social and political satire in the salons, journals, and books lent itself to be at the forefront of, of modernism. And either or both of those versions, although they're somewhat contradictory, seems to be what the kind of cultural literature says about the pivotal role of Vienna. An alternative view, which dissents from the so-called culturally deterministic view of Vienna, of the relationship between Freud and his relationship to the city, is expressed by the contemporary historian Peter Gay. Gay argues that Freud lived far less in Austrian Vienna than in his own mind. He lived with the international positivist tradition, with the tantalizing triumphs of classical archaeologists, with the admirable and moving model provided by the great French scientist of the mind, Jean-Martin Charcot, with whom Freud had studied for about six months after he finished his residency training, 
with the consolations of his far-flung correspondence and with the infinitely instructive surprises of systematic introspection. Gay goes on to argue that his Vienna, Freud's Vienna, was medical Vienna, and that city was rarely frequented by the hospitable mansions of Vienna's artistic patrons. And besides, medical Vienna was only partially Austrian. Instead, it represented in the late 19th century a microcosm of German scientific talent. Freud's mind, concludes Gay, was as large and as free as his physical habitat was constricted. Well, within that sort of broad paradigm, there's a more narrow paradigm that focuses specifically on the influence of Jewishness and Jewish culture in Vienna on the development of Freud's ideas. Just a few demographic points that I've been able to cull from the literature. Vienna underwent a massive population explosion in the 30 years between 1859 and 1890s. Population more than trebled. And about 160,000, roughly 12% of these were Jews, about a third of whom came from the impoverished provinces of eastern Poland, in particular Galicia. However, a census of the graduating classes of the newly refurbished gymnasium system in Vienna, after the, which had been set up after the 1848 revolution, then seems to show that about 40 to 50% of the graduating classes at the senior level of the gymnasium system were Jews, in contrast to their constituting about 12% of the population. And of these, about two-thirds came from what might be called liberal bourgeois family backgrounds, with uh, their work in the areas of commerce, industrial management and ownership, journalism, and the professions. Against this background, there's been a considerable amount of discussion as to what degree do Freud's ideas, what, to what degree do they owe something to his Jewishness. And not surprisingly, there are a number of positions. What might be called the minimalist position argues that Freud had very little to owe, owing to, to his Jewish background. Peter Gay, as I've just mentioned, takes that view. Ernest Gellner has argued that Nietzsche is the force behind Freud's thinking. On the other hand, at the maximalist end of the, uh, in, of the debtedness, da writers like David Bacan have traced the uh, tradition of uh, mystical writing, the Kabbalah, uh, and its influence on Freud. The, pay, the book by uh, Kudahi, a, a Hungarian, called The Ordeal of Civility, tracing the indebtedness of Marx, Freud, and the anthropologist Levi-Strauss um, to their Jewish roots and the writings of Martha Robert. The argument of uh, the relationship between Freud and his Jewishness can be broken down to a number of lines of scholarship, which I've summarized here. One is what might be broadly called the intellect, the cultural influences at a number of levels. The presence of the family, the Jewish family, as a source of motivation and support. His ethnic peer group, the B'nai B'rith, which was an organization of sort of educated laymen, laymen and laywomen, who provided a forum for Freud in the early years where he felt himself marginalized from the Viennese medical establishment. Historical role models in his writings, particularly the figures of Moses and Joseph, the interpreter of dreams, and a variety of other forms of knowledge. Or, from a less cultural and more cognitive and psychological aspect, the impact of being an outsider in the Viennese society as a whole and within the medical system in particular. On the positive side, the effects of group 
membership, group mobilization, which fosters introspective group debate, risk-taking, entrepreneurship, the political radicalism that I've already mentioned, the relativistic ways of thinking, or what we now in contemporary neuro, neuropsychology call perspectivism, which is enhanced by knowing a number of languages, and Freud, like many of his contemporaries, was fluent in several languages. On the other hand, at the negative end of the scale, the same experience may provide a sense of painful isolation or rejection or a sense of being different. And there is a lot that has been written about the anti-Semitism that Freud encountered, some of it at the level of society and some of it at the level of medicine. And within the medical framework, two types. One, the idea that Jews should perhaps uh, not enter the medical school because they lack the intellectual capacity to become doctors. This view was championed by the famous surgeon uh, Theodore Billroth, whom doctors will know, uh, even as medical students, we used to study his, uh, his gastric surgery, the, the operations of Billroth. Or fundamentally, closer to the bone, as it were, the so-called racial question. Sander Gilman, a historian of, of psychiatry and psychoanalysis, describes in detail the widespread anxiety in Viennese society and the fantasies that followed from the, con the con consideration of circumcision, that circumcision in some way evoked fears amongst the non-Jewish um, male intellectuals of the feminization of the body amongst the Viennese intellectuals. We can perhaps wonder whether Freud had something to say about all this. And references to his Jewishness are relatively sparse in Freud, but I chose this one. When in 1873, I joined the university, I experienced some appreciable disappointments. Above all, I found that I was expected to feel myself inferior and alien because I was a Jew. I refused absolutely to do these things. I have never been able to see why I should feel ashamed of my descent or as people were beginning to say of my race. These first impressions at the university, however, had one consequence, which was afterwards to prove important. For at an early age, I was made familiar with the fate of being in the opposition and of being put under the ban of the compact majority. This reference to the compact majority, as I found out some of you may know, is a reference to Ibsen's play, The Enemy of the People. The foundations were thus laid for a certain degree of independence of judgment. When Freud died in 1939, the poet W.H. Auden wrote an elegaic poem in which he declared that by the time of his death, Freud had become no longer a man of ideas, but a climate of opinion. In the current context of intellectual climate change towards the ideas of Freud, I hope that this paper has shed some light on how his ideas developed. Thank you.